0: here, thank you. One of my uh kids got sick last night, and so my family was unable to come with me. I wanted to say uh just a couple a couple of remarks before we start as um the topic of sexuality can be um daunting, especially where we don't know each other. There might be a, a concern or a fear that where is this going to go um, in, in an attempt to draw a crowd? Pastors have uh, been crafts and have resorted to tactics. Maybe that would um, you you've probably seen books in the Christian bookstore, X-rated Bible and this kind of stuff where it's like, oh, all the all the naughty stuff you didn't know was in the good book. And um, that's not that's not what we're doing. So uh, if if you were worried about that, hopefully that's um, put to put to rest. This is a very broad um, covering, and so what we're going to do is we're going to try to look at the Bible and understand both how the Bible speaks literally to sexuality, and how the Bible requires believers to think allegorically about sex, because God uses sexual intimacy, sexual immorality, as an allegory in order to teach us how to think about the world. And this is contrasted um, with maybe a church culture that has existed at different periods of time in which sex was considered something that had nothing to do with God, except that you had to be married to have it. And, um, and so that we're, what we're trying to do is, first and foremost, be biblical in our thinking And so with that, let's say a word of prayer and then let's go to the go to the Bible. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be here. And thank you that we can have so many copies of the Bible in our midst. Help us to treasure the word. Help us to be men and women and boys and girls of the word. That you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would be worshipers. That we would be like Christ. I that you would give us the mind of Christ. I pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word with spirit and power and the hearing of your word. I pray that you would edit out anything I might say that would be wrong. I pray, Father, for all of the injury that is connected to this topic of sexual intimacy and sexual immorality. Even in this room. I pray, Father, that you would do good work of healing in people's hearts and minds. And in their lives. I pray that we would be reverent of God and your holiness. And that we would be grateful for our humanity. And not see it as something that you've designed for us to. Shirk off eventually once we get into the spirit stuff, but that we would live in the body to the glory of God. I pray that you would save the people of Camden. I pray that you would use your church to proclaim the gospel to their neighbors and their enemies. I pray that you would bring people here to be discipled as followers of Jesus. I pray that you would change everything about the spiritual topography of Maine. That the people of Maine would praise you resoundingly, would believe that the gospel would be going out here from this place in power and in force. That the people moving into middle school and the people moving into high school would would love the gospel and love Jesus with more zeal than the generation before them. I pray that we would not waste our lives on ourselves, but that we would eat and drink and live to the glory of God. Pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. St. Augustine was converted out of a life of sexual immorality and pride. He'd also been catechized in the false religion of Manichaeism, which was strongly dualistic precursor to Gnosticism. Both false religions emphasize that the body's bad. It's not the real stuff. This is the shadow realm, and eventually we'll get rid of all the meat and we'll live in real spiritual reality that exists um, sometimes throughout evangelicalism as well. Both of these factors, the factor that he was in a traveling acting guild and was sexually immoral and arrogant, combined with his semi-Gnostic upbringing, contributed significantly to his pessimistic view of sexuality, sexual intimacy, even within the bonds of marriage. It should be noted that his desire was that the church would practice sexual purity. This was in a context where not only in his past, but in his culture, in his day, sexual immorality was rampant and praised and celebrated every kind He desired that Christians would not be conformed to the world when it came to how one understood human sexuality. And that's a noble endeavor. And that's one we should champion even ourselves, even if our conclusions would differ from Augustine's. In his book of the good marriage, he argues if a married couple has sexual intercourse for the sake of procreation, they're technically not sinning. If they engage in sexual intercourse for the purpose of pleasure, it's not a mortal sin, but it's a venial sin. And the danger, of course, is that even the allowed use of intercourse for procreation comes with the possibility of mixed motives, which may be hard for the believer to carefully discern. How do we know that somebody's simply trying for another son? We don't. Uh, there's an apocryphal story, perhaps, of some young couple coming to Augustine saying, We really want to have babies, but we're not sure we can have sex without the pursuit of pleasure. Our motives may be mixed. And Augustine says, I don't know what to tell you. And this it seems strange and harsh, but the thing to keep in mind here is that there was a very high view of sexual purity and sexual immorality. As someone whose mind had been saved and cleansed by the Word of God, sexual immorality was seen as kryptonite to the believer. This will kill Christians. It does, it always has, and it always will. And so, what we don't want to do is have sort of this Nathaniel Hawthorne poo pooing view of Puritanism and look at Augustine and say, Oh, give me a break, he was so uptight even though he was too negative, too pessimistic. Some, part, some parts of the church and at some times in the church, sexual intimacy, whether in the marriage covenant or not, is seen as something dirty. Even if it's clean, it's like underwear. We don't talk about it. You don't mention it. It's something that God turns His face from, even if it's in covenant, since he made the mistake of not letting us get babies from some other source. This was the way I was raised. My dad's a pastor, and I, and I love my parents. But the culture in which I was raised left me with no other option than to actually be catechized into an understanding about human sexuality from the boys at public school. That was the only place I could learn, because that was the only place people were willing to talk about it. So we're going to cover much more biblical ground than can be thoroughly worked through in one sermon, and the reason for that is that I hope to give us an intentional spectrum on a biblical view of sex. In short, the Bible not only uses sexuality to describe knowledge of God, and this is um, a common definition of the word "know," is to actually um, is to emphasize sexual intimacy. And so knowledge is a receiving in more than just a hearing. It's a receiving into oneself. And that's why in the King James, maybe it'll say he went in unto her and knew her. Because knowledge is consistently throughout the Bible used interchangeably with sexual intimacy. And a rebellion against God is also employing sexual intimacy language. You cheated on me. You went off with someone else. It teaches that Christ, in Christ, sexuality is not merely a tolerated bodily function, but it's a signifier of the glory of the mystical union that the believer has with his or her Lord. That on purpose, knowing what would come into people's minds, The design was that we would think of ourselves as a bride being married by our bridegroom and it would be celebrated and through our union we would enter into perpetual joy, perpetual ecstasy that comes from the biblical language is covenantal mutual indwelling, perichoresis, Christ in us and we in him. This is our great hope. For the believer, sex should be a foretaste of greater glory. We should not de sex. We should recognize the sexual signification inside sex that is pointing to a greater glory than what can be housed by sex. It is why people who recognize something religious about it, something worthy of devotion, something worthy of worship, which is what every love poem is. And it's not all bad worship, but it's an ascription of worth. That there's something God placeholder in all of that. It's why some people will become slaves to those gods. Because they would rather have a God they can feel and see and touch than a God of the word who says, you can't look at me or you'll die. And this is replete in Israel's history. It's It's not out of bounds for us. Israel exchanged the gold from their ears, which is an ornamenting of the hearing organ, which God said is how he would interact with them. And they melted it down and made something for their eyes that they could see. So they exchanged the God of the word for a God of the image. And that's what sexual idolatry has done in every generation ever since. The word idol comes from the word idolon, which means the ones who show themselves. You can't look at God. You hear the word of God and you believe and you be changed, but you can't look at God. And yet strippers and pornography and all these th- things are offering us Uh, a cheap placeholder of quick joy. Leonard Ravenhill used to say, entertainment is the devil's replacement for joy. Amusement, etymologically, means without thinking. A, without, negative, muse, thinking. A biblical understanding of, of sexuality should incite worship of God. Of God and this is what God is doing in the Bible is he's employing love letters love songs stories about guys who love this girl and are willing to chase her all over town he's using this on purpose so that he could reach the very center of our humanity and calling us to himself A biblical understanding of sexuality should be a canvas for a life of service, actually. And of esteeming others as better than ourselves. And this is the danger of idolatry. All idolatry allows us to share the throne. So in sexual idolatry what ends up happening is I get to sit in God's chair and everyone around is serving me so that I can feel good. But a biblical view of sexual intimacy puts us in the seat of a Christian who's carrying a cross and who esteems others as better than ourselves. The passages we're looking at are both implicit and explicit, but none of them are dirty. When I was a teenager, the youth group understanding of sex was one, Christians don't talk about it till you're not allowed to do it till you're married. That's it. That's the biblical theology of sex. What that broken, bankrupt, and Gnostic worldview teaches is that the church is stuff for church and everything else really belongs to the world. I wouldn't have wanted my parents to have taught me about sex anyway because sex belongs to the world in that, in that mindset. It didn't belong to Jesus. It didn't belong to God. Pastors, parents, wouldn't know anything about it. Because that's something that's out of bounds, really, and tolerated in some contexts. That was Augustine's view. The Bible teaches a better way. It teaches us to think biblically about sex and then to think sexually about the world in that order. Not sexually about the world until we think biblically about sex. Because God created this Amazing scenario in which the chain of life can only keep springing forth into the world if his creatures will participate in the most ecstatic and pleasurable moments in creaturely existence. You can't get more humans unless you do this. That's God's design. And everything chemically that happens and spiritually that happens... In sexual intimacy, that is a blessing, that is good, that is rapturous, is by the design of God, so that we would launch forth from joy into co creation, into bringing forth after his design into the world. The human race will not survive unless we do this, and we're forced in the event to be happy about it. Of course, that's unless sin enters it. And when sin enters into sexual intimacy, it goes very, very bad, very fast. Our first passage is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And now notice the emphasis here. Sanctification is all the Christ likeness that the Holy Spirit's bringing about with the use of other Christians, with the use of affliction, and the use of the Word of God. Suffering, trial, Christians, sometimes those are the same things, and um, the Word of God. He's making us like Jesus, right? And then there's like this epicenter of what, if you want, if you want a handle by which to grab sanctification, for this is the will of God, your sanctification is. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust. Like the Gentiles who do not know God. So again, we're not going to go as slow as we would if we were doing a study through 1 Thessalonians. But rather what we want to see is that there's a dichotomy that's given to us in Scripture. Firstly... Firstly, however, notice verse 3 doesn't say, doesn't say that you abstain from sexual intimacy. But that you abstain from sexual immorality. The subjunctive in, um, I can't remember where the passage is, uh, the verse that says, let, it's in Hebrews, let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's the subjunctive, which means that it's possible for the marriage bed to be defiled. But Christians sometimes talk about it as if the marriage bed is undefiled, meaning we're allowed to do whatever we want because we're married. Absolutely not. You don't get to hang up your Christian Lwana badge once you're getting into bed. This is, actually, this is actually a canvas upon which our Christianity should be, according to the Bible, intimately expressed. That we are not clocking out when we go to bed, it's let the marriage bed be undefiled because it can be. And that's not just because of adultery or pornography, that the marriage bed might be defiled. It's the things that would make a Christian cease from practicing their Christianity, like loving their enemies, serving others, esteeming others as better than yourselves. These things don't stop just because you're experiencing pleasure or because you're allowed to even pursue pleasure. Your Christianity doesn't stop. This immorality is then described as the ability, the lack of ability to control one's body. Unbelievers are slaves to their passions and to their lust, to their sexual appetite. If it feels good, do it. All kinds of patterns are caught in this net. Don't be like unbelievers who don't have self-control. So as you grow as a Christian, the Holy Spirit has more and more um, sovereignty over you, more control over you, you're more filled with the Spirit, and proof that someone else is controlling you as a Christian is that you control yourself. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. That's contrasted with people who do not have the Holy Spirit. And who are basically figuring out how is the, what are the proper channels for me to do what I want without negative consequences. And that's about it. Is it legal? Then it's fair ball. That's how pagans think. That's not you. Your ethics are not derived by legality. That's for pagans. Galatians 5 unbelievers need somebody to say, if you do that, I'll hit you in the face with a stick. I'll put you in the box for the night. And so they go, oh, we're not allowed to do that. And then it gets legalized. and Everybody gets to go, yay, it's legal. It's right. Now we can do it. You can't say anything bad about it because it's legal. The law is for people who don't have the Holy Spirit to actually punish them because they would go crazy and they would kill the world if they weren't stopped. that's why cops have guns. So all kinds of patterns are caught in this net. Pornography, which teaches people that by distributing a virtual representation of real sex, that autistic sex, meaning self-concerned, self-obsessed sex, masturbation, is consequenceless because it's perceived as not being real. As a pastor, I deal with this all the time. A woman finds out that her husband is addicted to pornography or that it's been a long-standing pattern in his life, and she's experiencing the reality that her husband has cheated on her, and he's thinking, what's the big deal? This is TV. This is not real. That's the disconnect. Because it's real women. It's real, live women. And it's a real, live man connected over time and space with real functions. But the great illusion in all of this is that the man actually, and it's, it's not just men, but it's mostly men, that the man believes this to not be real because they've bought into the lie that it's virtual, therefore not real. But the Bible sets up a scenario in which bodily function, including what Jesus says, thought crime, is an imprintable dimension of reality by which we, for which we will be judged. That in the thought realm, the ribbon has images imprinted into it. And then that will be run out and will be asked about it as a judgment seat in relation to our works. This is very real. There's a rap video I showed my students when I was teaching And it's the it starts, and there's a girl on top of a car dancing. It's like a really nice, expensive car. It's not very provocative. But she's dancing on top of this car, and the guy is in front of it, and his whole mouth is full of gold, and he's got like $100 bills spilling out of his belt, and he's just going, wow, 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 in front of the car. And then the camera backs up and backs up and backs up, And eventually you see the director, you see the shooting, the video, and the director goes, okay, stop for a second. And the girl puts on this huge coat because it's freezing cold out on top of this apartment building where they're recording the video. And her kids are off there eating donuts over at the the, um, uh, uh, concession table. And she's quickly trying to be like, mommy's almost done. It's okay, mommy's almost done. These are all very human, very real events and and we buy into an idolatrous illusion through edited images instead of being people of the word that this is not this is not what it what it's being accused by the word of being this is not the only thing that would fall under the vice of living in obedience to sexual passion even in marriage, one can commit sexual sin, and it need not be pornography or adultery. There are many examples that we could probably come up with, all of us, if we thought about it for a minute. And Augustine was not crazy in this regard. Here, I'd like to suggest that a married man or a woman who approaches sexual intimacy in the marriage covenant solely, solely, as their chance to get off, is guilty of Objectifying their spouse and idolizing passion, thereby obeying a kind of sinful vice. A Christian has no opportunity to be self centered. You don't, it doesn't matter if it's your birthday or if someone else is buying the beer, you don't have license. To live like a narcissist. Ever. Ever. In short, the marriage bed should not be a place where Christians cease to serve one another. Or esteem the other as better than the self. This requires spiritual maturity. Because there's a lot of humanity happening. And Paul's language about the flesh, meaning not just the sinful appetites, which is the way the flesh is used almost every time in the Bible, but literally says, while I'm in the body, the flesh is waging war against the spirit. So the body itself is experiencing a brokenness and a sinfulness that has affected it, so that even in good things, there is this temptation to keep going. Back it out for a second and just look at ice cream. Ice cream's awesome. It's my favorite breakfast. Truly. I was eating every, I was was trying a whole bunch of things for, I hate breakfast, I like coffee, that's about it, and it's like, breakfast is one of those things where it's like, that's gross, when can we just have supper? And, um, but then I was like, people give me yogurt and milk over, uh, you know, cereal and all this stuff, and I kept being like, even if you put sugar on it, something's missing, and then I was like, oh, it's not ice cream, (laughs) that's the problem with every breakfast food. And there's a tendency with something good that's allowed, like ice cream. The Christian knows this. That you can think, oh, it's my birthday, or oh, I deserve this, I earned this. And you can approach food, which is something we even need. And you can have a temptation here to just clock out and to stop being a Christian in relation to your food. The Bible's very clear. You don't have any right to not be Christian in relation to your food. You have to be very Christian in relation to your food. And there's a number of things from sharing to gluttony that are in that conversation. But there's a temptation here because like with sex, with ice cream, you've got a whole bunch of neural pathways that are lit up. And you're like, this is awesome. Ben and Jerry's for president. And and sex does that as well. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to have ice cream. That means that you're not allowed to stop being a Christian. One of the men who's mentored me has his PhD in sexual ethics. And one of the things he's frequently said is that in the history of Israel, there was a clear and long line of a tradition of rabbis that said the Bible explicitly taught that a man had a responsibility to learn to please his wife. That does not mean not be a leader or not be or or to be passive, but in every way, the pleasure of his wife as a leader, as an instigator, as an initiator, which is what a man is in every single way, biologically and relationally. Per the design of God. That a man is actually called to learn how to please his wife. Paul addresses this in 1st Corinthians 733. The rabbis understood that in light of passages like the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, a husband's requirement to please his wife extended beyond fixing the broken step in front of the house. It was more than just that. A husband who's a believer should view sexual intimacy as an opportunity to make his wife feel safe. This is related to sexual intimacy, secure, and served in that order. The rabbis would say that one of the tasks of the newly married man is to learn what it takes to make his wife experience more pleasure than him in the marriage bed. This was part of it. Any man who speaks with his wife and listens when she talks would eventually learn that sexual intimacy begins for her in his manner towards the children, in his responsibility before the Lord, and in his handling of her weaknesses. Rosaria Butterfield says, men have sex, women have conversation. His first Thessalonians passage also teaches us that in God's mind, Sexual purity is a consequence of knowing God. Sexual purity is a consequence of knowing God. Whereas sexual immorality is a logical consequence of not knowing God. These final two passages that which we'll look will hopefully give us a bit of the scope of just how, a sec- how sexual a healthy biblical worldview actually is. Ezekiel 23, we'll only read to verses 21, to verse 21. Ezekiel 23, 1 to 21. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There, their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Ahola was the name of the elder. And Aholibah, the name of her sister. They became mine and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola, which means her tent, is Samaria. And Aholeba, which means my tent is in her, is Jerusalem. Ahola played the whore while she was mine. She lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple Governors, commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them. The choicest men of Assyria, all of them. And she defiled herself with all the idols of every of everyone after whom she lusted. She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt. For in her youth, men had lain with her and humbled her virgin bosom, and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness. They seized her sons and her daughters, and as for her, they killed her with the sword. And she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. Her sister, Aholabah, saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders and warriors clothed in full armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way, but she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall. Pornographic graffiti. The images of Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waists, which flowing tur- with flowing turbans on their heads, all of them having the appearance of officers, a likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. And when she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoring lust. And after she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. When she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I turned in disgust from her sister. Yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt and lusted after her lovers there. Whose members were like those of donkeys and whose issue was like that of horses. And thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. The chapter goes on to keep in character. It it continues right to the end. I'm not going to spend long on these passages, not because they're dirty, they're not. That's the point. These are passages that teach us how to think biblically about sex and then, in an appropriate manner, think sexually about reality. Because God's design of keeping reality going is sexual by nature, by design. And sexuality, according to the word of God, which he has been good enough to give us, says There are guardrails on sexuality that the word has given us. There are right ways and wrong ways to think and to act in relation to sexuality. And there are very clear descriptors of the blessings that exist in one and the curses that exist in the other. At this point, some of you might think, why in the world do we need to think sexually about the world, you weirdo? And the answer is because God does. And he then communicates consistently throughout the Bible sexual allegories to his people in scenarios where sex is not the issue. God makes it about sex as ways of describing sin and righteousness in such a way that it would make sense to us. That's what he's doing. He's making sense of the world in regard to the way he thinks. There's a wealth of commentary in this chapter. We see clearly that what one generation tolerates, the next will embrace. Oholah's little sister is watching her and starts earlier than her. Wesley said that what one generation tolerates, the next embraces. And this is important because there isn't actually a girl named Ahola or Aholiba. There's not a girl who actually did this. This is God's script. This is God's pitch for a novel. The name Ahola, the name Aholiba, Her tent, my tent is in her, denotes sexual immorality. God is judging his people. God's judging his people in this passage. Samaria and Jerusalem belong to Israel, God's covenant people. And for what are they being judged? For sexual immorality? Is he exposing the deeds done in darkness? I saw you do that. Not an not entirety. Sexual immorality is part of the list against them. But he personifies them with names of girls and then tells a story about that girl and her little sister. And the indictment that he brings against these girls, which represent. Samaria and Jerusalem regions is replete with idolatry covetousness which Paul says is idolatry he says if you want to think about idolatry think about this covetousness is idolatry not reverencing the Sabbath having no fear no reverent fear of God and obeying God That's the sin. That he creates this story like a parable in order to teach people what he thinks of these cities. We might even expect that this kind of passage would be understandable if the sin was literal. If this is actually what they did, that may be okay, right? But because this is figuratively what they did, the text may be more unsettling. It means God would write stories that are more sexually explicit than we would. He didn't need that line about donkeys. Are we his editor? The question isn't, did he really need that line about donkeys? The question is, why did he need that line about donkeys? And here's the first important part. The only way to be sexually explicit and not sinful the only way to be sexually explicit and not off-color, so to speak, is to understand how the Bible teaches how to properly think and speak about sex. So Paul delineates between these two things in Ephesians 5, his commandment against disgraceful, disgraceful speech, is speech that would disgrace the speaker. His commandment not to mention deeds that are done in secret, is a commandment against whispering about them, as if they really were the juicy bits. They're not. Sexual immorality is not a naughty delicacy. He follows that command up with the command to expose those things that ought not be spoken about. Expose them. That's what light does. And that's what God is doing. The issue is that a worshiper of God should have a reverence for God's holiness, which would result in a hatred. Not only of sexual immorality, but of sins that would be allegorized by God as sexual immorality. There's no hope for someone trapped in pornography addiction unless they come to a place where they see God's holiness as actually being beautiful and worthy of pursuit. And they see their own sin as putrid, cancerous filth. As long as the mindset of the immature believer is still functioning like a pagan who thinks, oh, God doesn't want any of us to have all the good stuff. I know I shouldn't, but boy, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. As long as there's this good old boy approach to sexual morality in the church, there's not going to be victory because God is still the bad guy. He's still the grandma who takes away our internet privileges. That is not what's happening. He's teaching us that we have a very skewed and very low view of who God is in his glory. And we have a very distorted view Of what cancer is. We think it's shiny. Read Proverbs. At first glance, the whore looks like she has the best fruit in the market. And every guy, like a dog, is just tongue out, standing there going, Oh, wow, wow, right? And the the whole lesson is for young men to learn how to be a man. Don't buy into that. Go over to this girl who's homely, whose fruit is bruised. What's her name? Wisdom. The more you spend time with her, the more your vision adjusts and you see she's the glorious one. She's glorious. You don't see it at first. You don't see it at first. In the Ezekiel passage, the primary sins are idolatry, breaking the Sabbath, And child sacrifice. If you read the context, that's why God is so angry that he gets up at the open mic and he tells this story about these. Once there were two sisters in Boston. That's what he's telling the story in response to. God images these hypocritical professing believers who have no reverence for his holiness who are looking at pornography in their spare time and laughing about it and letting, them, letting it fuel them on to even greater sinful ambitions like endorsing and tolerating abortion as not being that bad. All of this is shown to God's people in this image that should make some of them who have become so desensitized go, "Ah, yeah, is he allowed to? I, my kids are with me. He's perfectly aiming at the desensitized, like a brilliant artist who says, oh, what do I, if, I, if this is true, then maybe we actually don't need beauty right now in order to teach them what truth is. Maybe we need something that would disturb them. All of this is shown to God's people in the image of a girl trying to outdo her older sister with how young she can start, how daring she can get in her forays and how fast. And there's nothing enticing about this imagery for those who love God, despite the fact that it is edgy. We remember the first Thessalonians passage. People who are fueled by sexual passion, who show themselves to be people who don't know God, And if we know God, that should not be the case with us. The chapter ends in a closing scene, which we didn't read, which is both violent and graphic and on purpose. By God. The younger sister wears herself out with illicit sex, literally, and eventually all the things that were a turn on at first become the very mechanisms of judgment. The fruit of. Rot in front of their faces. The fruit that at first was the most glorious in the marketplace. The boys that at first touched her breath become men who shred them, tear them to pieces. The subtle. Rock and roll pulling up of her skirt just a little bit, which enticed. Everyone in the room into being willing to go into wickedness with her becomes a scene of horror and debasement. In this passage, sex is not used to teach us only about sexual immorality, but it's used as a palate cleanser to make us hungry for purity. Not simply sexual purity. That's the point. The allegory and employment of sexuality was so that as Bible learners, we might go, Whoa, I need to think this way about my own covetousness. As a Christian, I need to approach advertising differently than someone with, with no biblical worldview approaches advertising. I'm not allowed to covet. This is God's body. I've got to take coveting seriously, even though it apparently is great for the market. I can't get a hall pass for this. We're to reverence the sanctity of life. We're to detect in our day this sexual allegory should teach us to be horrifically unsettled Over abortion. This should teach us a reverence for God. In his holiness. And a gratefulness should be inspired for what God's given us. That's anti-covetousness. Thankfulness. That's anti-covetousness. Despite the fact that our neighbors all get to have what at first looks fun, appealing, g- more glamorous. Let's quickly go to Song of Solomon 7 in closing. Song of Solomon 7. He speaks. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O oh noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts. Are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Basrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O oh, loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. She speaks. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over my lips and teeth. I'm my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved. Let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the great blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. And there I'll give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I've laid up for you, O my beloved. Now, this is an entirely different passage. We won't spend as long on it. We're close to the end. This chapter should feel like somebody pulled the VHS tape out quick in a panic and shoved in Sleeping Beauty. Right? This is not dirty. It's explicitly and implicitly sexual. But it's beautiful. And pure. It's a real love story. There are hard moments. There are lessons that young lovers have to learn in it. There are scary scenes. But the imagery in what we read is not employed only as an allegory for God's covenantal love for his people. But it is that as well. At different times throughout church history, some people have thought that they got rid of the problem of Song of Solomon by only allegorizing it as being God's love for the church. This is not about sex, people. This is about Christ and the church. And that fixes everything. (laughs) This is true. But notice what's going on in God's allegorical mind when he thinks about the church then. It's a movement from attraction, from value being placed on something by the king that in common utterance might not have had value had he not placed value on it. And it moves from that courtship into pleasure, covenantal pleasure. And that doesn't solve anything for the Augustinian Passion Police. But rather, it offers up two fields of corrective vision. Firstly, covenantal pleasure is worth singing about in the mind of God. I mean physically and literally. Marital sex that is secure and safe and serving it is beautiful and it is a gift from God. But secondly, however, it teaches us that God is willing to explain the far greater pleasures in life, like union with Him and His holiness and our need to reject sin in terms that we can fathom. We get love stories. We get that. And God built it that way, that we would get love stories. Covetousness, pornography, abortion, are things that we should be sensitized to in order to see them as they are. We should be sensitized to the stench and the horrendous nature not to condemn sinners who need forgiveness in Jesus Christ but so that as those who have come to Him and are in Him and He is in us we are operating in such a way that would bring Him glory and that we are not operating like people who have not been cleansed. Christ dwelling in us and our abiding in Him is beautiful and it is clean and it is rewarding and it is joyous, ecstatic even. It's like when you and your wife first met and she was willing to let you read your poetry to her. It's like when she finally started to believe that you did in fact love her and she started saying that she loved you back. The horrendous nature of sin and the holiness of God are both to be held onto with the only possible bridge between them being the gospel of Jesus Christ. What brings Israel of Ezekiel 23 into a place of Song of Solomon seven. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God man who reconciles, reconciles sinners to a holy God. That's the basis for our victory over sin. Including shame for sins we've been forgiven of. That's the basis for our victory. This is the basis for our healing from crises of sexual identity confusion. The basis is that the cross of Christ can reconcile confused, wandering, far removed, out of bounds, stinking horrendously sinners with the holiness of God. It's the foundation and basis for healing, for forgiveness, for reconciliation. And it's the basis of our joy and vitality in worship. If you know the conviction that you are lukewarm in your walk, you need intimacy with the Lord. can't remember who the English poet is who says, Ravage me, Ravish me, Thou triune God. You know that? Listen to John Calvin on God's being willing to speak to us at the street level using earthly language and earthly human motifs in order to teach us about himself. For who is so devoid of intellect as to not understand that God, in so speaking, speaks with us, lisps with us, as nurses are wont to do with little children. Such modes of expression, therefore, don't so much express what kind of a being God is as accommodate the knowledge of Him to our feebleness. In doing so, He must, of course, stoop far below His proper height. Both of these passages teach that there is forgiveness, not only for sexual sin, but for every sin. They teach that God has not only commanded, but equipped us, his people, for holiness. It doesn't matter where you started. When you came to Christ, you ended up in a dazzling, dazzling white dress with all the world in awe of your purity and beauty. That's the image of God's people. This is the work of Christ in us. Those who abide in him. And are all, and all are invited into the joy of union with a holy God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We pray that you would.